the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Greetings to my friends in Israel who are listening. I'm Hugh Hewitt, live inside the Beltway on this December 5th, 2023. I want to talk to Jews today. My phone number is 1-800-520-1234. I want to talk to American Jews about the explosion of anti-Semitism in this country. So I'm going to do three things. First, I'm going to run down a couple of headlines, which are important from Israel and the war for survival that Israel is waging in Gaza. Number two, the outbreak of Trump hysteria. And it is hysteria. It's actually hysteria. Now, it's among a very small group of elite Washingtonians and New York City media types, but it's hysteria. And I want to contrast the hysteria that a small group of never-Trump intellectuals have talked themselves into with the reality of what's going on in the world, specifically in Israel, but across the world. And I ask you to suggest to the people who are hysterical, stop it. They are diverting attention from the real problem and real world in which we live. Now, many of you are new to my program because we added a bunch of affiliates at the uh, fourth quarter. May have had something to do with my moderating the presidential debate last month. It may have something to do with there is no other great morning show in the morning that does news and politics with some humor and the Cleveland Browns, the Ohio State Buckeyes, the Cleveland Guardians and the Cleveland Cavaliers. It is kind of a unique offering in the morning, but I think it's because. People are concerned about the world, and they want news of 2024, but mostly they want to know what the heck is going on out there because they see things that trouble them. Specifically, they see an explosion of anti-Semitism in the country, and I mean an explosion. Not just in Philadelphia on Sunday night, but in New York City on Saturday night, both at Columbus Circle and on the Upper West Side. In New York City, the teacher who was barricaded in their room by students rioting. They have seen it all over the country on campuses from Harvard to Columbia to NYU to Cornell to Northwestern to way out west at the University of California, San Diego. They have seen Jewish students truly in fear of their physical safety. They saw the Cooper Union. They are worried, and I know that Jews in America, and I'm not Jewish, right? I'm not Jewish. And I, however, am aware of what something John Podhoritz said on the commentary podcast yesterday, the truth of it, which is once this start, it doesn't stop. Jews have always been the canary in a coal mine for a country. And right now there is a canary dying in our coal mine in the United States. I'm fully aware of the two horrific attacks on Palestinians in or Palestinian Americans in Burlington, Vermont, where three young men were shot, one is paralyzed from the waist down, and in Chicago, Illinois, where a boy and his mother were stabbed, the boy died, the mom is terribly injured. 
by crazy people. I'm also aware that there was an explosion in a house in Arlington, Virginia last night that I, I just cannot. I've sent the video to Dwayne and Adam, and maybe we'll be able to play the video if Harley gets it queued up here. The house just actually, oh, let's play the video of the house exploding because it's a metaphor for, watch this, if you're watching on the Salem News Channel. The police, are, boom. Oh, you hear the guy say, oh, the, 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 the guy had been setting off flares. Whoever guy, I say guy, I don't know that it was a guy. I don't know who it was. Someone was setting off flares in this house. And then they decided, oh, let's just blow the house up when the police had them surrounded and said, come on out. And they blew the house up. So there's crazy stuff going on in the country and crazy stuff in the world. The news out of Israel that I want you to know before I talk about the hysteria among the never Trumpers is the Israeli defense forces say that they have surrounded the Hamas's general security headquarters. They are surrounding Jabalaya and dozens of tanks have rolled into southern Gaza. Rocket fire continues at Tel Aviv. And the war goes on, and it's going to go on. It's going to go on for quite some time. Those are the key headlines. I'll update you on the war as it goes along. The other key thing in the Wall Street Journal, Israel said to set up pumps in Gaza for flooding Hamas tunnels with seawater, which I thought would be coming. You give the Israelis enough time to figure something out, then get to Entebbe and back with everybody except Benjamin Netanyahu's brother alive. They get 14,000 Ethiopian Jews out of Ethiopia with no runways. They can do all sorts of amazing things. They are a very diligent and inventive military. So you got a tunnel problem. They have built, the Hamas monsters have built an upside-down Maginot line in Hamas land. And that is going to be flooded. And I think what the IDF is doing is closing off as many escape hatches as possible before they start to flood it so that they'll have to come up through and can be captured or killed as they come up through a certain number of exits. And the IDF will be standing there waiting to greet them with uh, cuffs or bullets. That's what I think is the, the, the grand strategic plan. So they built the metro, a metro like the London Underground or like the Washington, D.C. metro or the New York City subway system, but there's enough water in the Mediterranean to flood it. And it will go to the lowest level. It's all got to be connected. This is not hard. This is an eighth grade science project. If you build an ant farm and you start to put water into it, the ants at the bottom are going to drown first. So they're going to move up and they're going to move up and it's going to get crowded and they're going to run out of food and it's going to be dangerous for the hostages. I get that. But that's what's going to happen to Hamas. Hamas will be destroyed and they're not going to stop. And they do not care what Vice President Harris and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Secretary of State Blinken say. And they know that President Biden is infirm and doesn't really quite have a grasp on what he is saying day to day. Some days are good. Some days are bad. But when he went to Israel, that was good. The bear hug. What's been bad has been everything since. And Democrats who support Israel, wake up. Your party is not supporting Israel. Just wake up. Chuck Schumer is, but not your executive branch. Now to part two. That's a serious problem. Xi Jinping is a serious problem. Putin is a serious problem. Our friends in Ukraine have their backs against the wall. That's a serious problem. We have a serious problem with the Iranian mullahs, Khamenei and his buddies, and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and the Quds Force. We have serious problems everywhere in the world. Serious problems. We do not have a problem with an approaching dictatorship of Donald Trump. But you would not know that if you read Beltway Media. Now, I want to read these, these four stories for you. It began with Robert Kagan on November 30th. Robert Kagan is a smart guy, neocon, been around for a long time, worked for Jack Kemp. Uh, consulted with W, friends with the, the the neocon crowd in D.C., of which I have many friends. 
I've been around since Reagan. I'm actually a Nixonian realist, not a neocon, but I usually agree with the neocons. I agreed with everything W did, and I know mistakes were made because we had bad intel, and maybe we ought not to have gone into Iraq, but counterfactuals in history don't much matter because you don't know what the other counterfactuals are that would have occurred. But generally, I am a P3 strength Reagan guy and a realist like Richard Nixon, which brings me into alignment with a lot of these people who call themselves neocons exclusively. Robert Kagan is a serious man. He wrote a very unserious column. A Trump dictatorship is increasingly inevitable. We should stop pretending. Right, that was five days ago. Then the New York Times yesterday posted why a second Trump presidency may be more radical than his first. It's a, quote, reported story by Charlie Savage, John Swan, and Maggie Haberman. Now, John and Swan's the best reporter in America, in my view, and Maggie Haberman's pretty good. I don't know Charlie Savage. It's all nonsense. It's all, it's all nonsense. They are actually reporting what people tell them. They're, you know, I know Liz Cheney is worried. I know that you can go find 50 people who say, oh, Donald Trump's going to be a dictator. It's going to be a tyranny. And they accurately report that. It doesn't make it real. I can get you 50 people who think that, that Elvis is alive in the United States. I can get you 1,000 people that don't think we landed on the moon. And 10,000 people think that Bigfoot is shopping at a Bucky's near you. I can, it doesn't matter how many people you quote. The reality is there isn't going to be a dictatorship in America because the Constitution is very strong. Exhibit number four, Ishan Thorpur, Tharur. I've never heard of him before, but he's apparently a columnist at the paper for which I work. The fear of a looming Trump dictatorship. You know what the giveaway in this was? You know what? The, I just had to circle this. When you have to write, this is not hyperbole, which he did. He wrote in this column. It's called an analysis. This is not hyperbole. That means this is hyperbole. If you have to say it's not hyperbole. And then The Atlantic, fine magazine run by Jeffrey Goldberg, its new issue, January, February issue, is entirely devoted to the danger ahead. If Donald Trump returns to the White House, he'd bring a better understanding of the system's vulnerability, more willing enablers, a more focused agenda of retaliation against his adversaries. That's by David Frum. Then we have a warning from Jeffrey Goldberg. Then we have Ann Applebaum writing Trump will abandon NATO. Then we have a story on how families will be separated. We have George Packer writing a journalism ready. We have, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It's an entire issue. Down near the bottom, they finally got Tom Nichols, who nobody knew about or cared about until he became a never-Trumper, and then he got passed over. It's turned into MSNBC. And so the hysteria is everywhere about Donald Trump. Okay, he's the front runner. He's probably going to be the nominee. I'm in Switzerland. I don't know who's going to be the nominee, but if he's the nominee, I'm going to vote for him and support him because Republicans are better than Democrats, and it's 3,000 people, not one person, and Trump will be better at it because he won't have Russia, 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 and the idiocy that surrounded the never-Trump hysteria. I'm going to explain to you how these two things connect when we come back from break. But reject the hysteria, focus on the reality, and if you're a Jew in America, 1-800-520-1234, I want to know what you think about the explosion of anti-Semitism and whether or not you are personally worried. Stay tuned. So this is Christmas And what have you done Another year over And you won't just be gone And so this is Christmas Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. 
Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So this is Christmas. Welcome back. I'm Hugh Hewitt. This is Christmas 2023. A real war for Israel's survival. Real monsters who murdered 1,200 people, injured 5,000, kidnapped 240. Yemen firing missiles at anything that moves, including it looked like it was aiming at the USS Carney, but we're not sure. Iran plotting it all. Hezbollah filling up with Syrians and Iranians and 140,000 missiles. The IDF fully mobilized and ready to go to war, regional war in the offing, and two Mediterranean uh, Sea task force, carrier task force. That's Christmas 2023. Ukraine on war funding, Xi getting ready to invade Taiwan, or at least thinking about it and pretending like he's going to do it, and anti-Semitism all over the United States. And what does the Beltway chattering class do? They, as one in unison, begin to warn of not the anti-Semitism, not the Hamas monsters, not Xi and the genocide in Taiwan, not Putin in Ukraine. They warn about Donald Trump being ahead in the polls. Now, I am in Switzerland. I do not know who's going to win. I am a fair broker between the former president, Governor DeSantis, Ambassador Haley, Governor Christie. I think Vivek is done. So we're down to four. And I think we're really down to three. Like Governor Christie a lot, great guest, but I think we're really down to three, and it's overwhelmingly likely, not overwhelmingly, like 75% chance that Donald Trump will be the nominee, and I will vote for him. And he isn't going to be a tyrant, and he isn't going to be a dictator. He's going to be a president for one term, and whoever he selects is vice president, and I think he ought to select either Senator Tom Cotton, Congressman Mike Gallagher, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former National Security Robert Advisor Robert O'Brien, Senator Joni Ernst or Senator Dan Sullivan. All of them have military experience. Some of them have combat experience. All of them are serious on national security. And whoever is the VP selectee will be the prohibitive nominee in 2028, Donald Trump, if he wins, and I think he probably will win. I study the polls, and this is why the Democrats and the never Trumpers are freaking out. Donald Trump will probably win, and he will govern differently. He will know a lot more. He will know how many people he needs to bring in, and he will know how many people he can fire, and he will do it all rather ruthlessly and immediately. He will, he will throw out at DOJ everyone who needs to be thrown out, and there many of them are Schedule A, and they can be fired, and it will be good for the country. And he's going to shuffle all the chairs over at the State Department and at the Department of Defense, and he's going to put in serious people. He knows who the serious people are now. Took him a while to learn, but he's a developer, and developers learn all the time. If anyone would just put on, instead of their Beltway hat, put on their real-world hat, and, okay, what do developers do? They do exactly what Donald Trump does. 
They get an idea, they work it, work it, work it. If it doesn't work, they abandon it and they move on to the next one. And they are whatever they need to be in whatever room they are to get their project approved and moving forward. And Donald Trump will do that. Why are all the people going crazy? And I named them all for you. Why are they writing about Trump dictators? Well, number one, likely that he's going to win and Biden is infirm and no one's going to vote for Kamala Harris ever. So the, the Democrats have screwed themselves because they stuck with Joe Biden too long. And so Donald Trump's going to win. And a Trump Biden had to had, I think Donald Trump wins fairly easily, in fact, because the American people are scared right now because they see what's going on in the world and they see the anti-Semitism. The people that Donald Trump disintermediated from influence and often money in 2017. And there were many that Donald Trump disintermediated. People who ran the town, people who were Beltway regulars. I came back to town in, in 2015 and I saw it happen in real time. People were angry. They lost their gigs. They lost their jobs. They lost their influence. Well, those people, not only will they be disintermediated, they will be utterly irrelevant and laughingstocks. So ignoring the sunk cost of having been never Trumpers in 2015, 2016, they are doubling down and becoming triple never Trumpers. They're putting all their chips, they're all in, and they're out of the game completely. Nobody will care what they get, think, or otherwise believe if we get to the end of this cycle, Donald Trump is President Trump again, and you've got Vice President Cotton or Vice President Gallagher or Vice President Pompeo or Vice President O'Brien or Vice President Ernst or Vice President Sullivan, and he staffed the Department of Justice with a senator and all the cabinet senators get confirmed, taking all senators from red states. He stepped up. He brought back some of his hardcore brass-knuckled people, but they abide by law. Because the rule of law is very strong in the United States, and the Constitution is very strong. And Donald Trump put constitutionalists on the Supreme Court. So if he goes too far anywhere with an executive order here, an executive order there, it'll get struck down by the Roberts Court. Always happens that way. I have great confidence in the Constitution. I do not worry about tyranny in the United States. I do worry about anti-Semitism. I do worry about Hamas. I do worry about Iran. I do worry about Russia. I worry about Xi Jinping. And maybe Donald Trump, I believe this to be absolutely true, I do not believe we would have had Abbey Gate. I do not believe Ukraine would have been invaded. I do not believe Hamas would have dared done what they did on 10-7 if Donald Trump had been reelected. But this hysteria is absurd. Stop it. Focus on the real evil. The real evils we can deal with in our own homes, in our own country, in our own Congress. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt, United States Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas joins us. Good morning, Senator. Welcome back. Good morning, Hugh. It's good to be back on with you. I got some serious stuff to talk about with you, but first two football questions. When Joe Flacco leads the Browns to the Super Bowl, do you think he'll go into the Hall of Fame as a Browns or as a Raven? <laughs> I'll let, leave that to all you AFC North uh, fans, uh, but uh, give it to the Browns. Um, they're playing a great season. All right, second question. I hope you're taking your SEC gear off before you go see Marco Rubio or Rick Scott because they're pretty unhappy right now with the college football playoff committee. <laughs> well, I have not uh, had a chance to speak with Senator Scott or Senator Rubio since their disappointment that Florida State didn't make the 14 playoff. I'll just put it this way. It's probably good for everyone involved that we're going to have a 12-team playoff next year. 
Amen. Now let's go to Kamala Harris. This is not serious, but it's important. Uh, she laid out the post-conflict conditions on Israel. She presumed to do this yesterday. I'm going to play it once, and then we're going to go back through each of the four and get your comment. Here is the vice president, cut number seven. Five principles guide our approach for post-conflict Gaza. No forcible displacement, no reoccupation, no siege or blockade, no reduction in territory, and no use of Gaza as a platform for terrorism. Okay, so your general reaction before we go them one at a time. It appears to me that she's reading something, Senator. Yeah, well, my general reaction, Hugh, is that no one, truly no one around the world, in the Middle East, in America, thought, what do we need to help solve Israel and America's challenges in the Middle East? And the answer is more Kamala Harris. <laughs> I know. Do you know, the only thing that was worse was John Kerry at COP, and the, uh, the Arab Gulf state representative pulled out his cell phone when he was droning on. That was pretty good. But let's go through. The first one is, let's play number one. Play it again, please. The five conditions. Five principles guide our approach for post-conflict Gaza. No forcible displacement. No reoccupation. Stop, stop right there. No forcible displacement. Anyone talking about that, Senator Cotton, that you've seen? Now, Hugh, and, and what I would say in general to all five of those statements is that, again, Kamala Harris isn't exactly Henry Kissinger when it comes to Middle Eastern politics. And I have not heard anyone in Israel or anyone who supports Israel in America talking about uh, forcible relocation, perhaps temporary relocation to try to protect the civilians that Hamas wants to keep in harm's way and using human shields. Um, but I think Kamala Harris is arguing against a straw man in a patronizing way. I agree. In fact, I don't think any uh, military in the history of armed conflict has gone to such a great extent as to put out a grid of Gaza, which is about the size of the Beltway. And they're basically telling people, if you're in Chevy Chase, you can go to Silver Spring or you can go down to the mall or you can zip over to Arlington, but you can't stay in Chevy Chase. Uh, and they're doing that by a grid. Have you ever seen any military do this before, Senator Cotton? Um, well, no, Hugh, it's very common for the Israeli Defense Forces to go far above and beyond the requirements of the laws of armed conflict because they know that um, all of the anti-Zionists and, frankly, anti-Semites around the world hold them to a unfair and unreasonable standard. And that very much includes Joe Biden and many uh, Democrats in Washington holding Israel to an unfair standard. Unfortunately, when you put out that kind of grid and say, here's where you should go if you want to avoid our attacks, Hamas fighters and leaders get that information as well, not just widows and orphans and nursing mothers and uh, children. Um, and I can also tell you this, among the, American, or among the militaries that didn't do it, Hugh, we didn't do it in Tokyo in March 9th and 10th when we killed over 100,000 Japanese in one night. And those are not the nuclear attacks, Hugh. Those are conventional bombings. Curtis LeMay knew what he was doing. He, he, Curtis LeMay intended to bring Imperial Jan to its, Japan to its knees. And it took two new it took two atomic bombs to do that. Let's go to condition number two. No reoccupation. Stop. No. Actually, Israel doesn't want Gaza, but they are going to take back, I believe, two kilometers of Gaza and declare it a demilitarized zone that no one may be in. And I think we should support that, Senator. What do you think? I think the last thing Israel wants to do, from Benjamin Netanyahu down to ordinary, normal Israeli citizens. 
uh, is to have to reoccupy Gaza and be responsible, say, for public services or security there. That's why Israel left almost 20 years ago, after which the people of Gaza promptly elected Hamas to, to lead them. But uh, again, this is the kind of patronizing lectures that Israel doesn't need when it's facing an existential crisis from Kamala Harris when no one in Israel wants to reoccupy Gaza. All right. Number three gets a little bit dicey. Go ahead with number three. No siege or blockade. Stop. There is a blockade. There will be a blockade until and unless Gaza becomes demilitarized and reform. Israel is going to maintain a blockade. So that's a departure from American policy. We did not criticize the blockade prior to 10-7, did we, Senator? No, Hugh. And I think when when the administration, the Biden administration, started complaining almost immediately after the October 7th attack that Israel was no longer providing water and electricity to Gaza, I think most normal American reaction wasn't like, oh, my goodness, Israel cut off water and electricity to Gaza. It was wow, why would Israel provide water and electricity to Gaza in the first place? Look, it, Gaza could do things like provide for its own public services if it hadn't spent 20, if Hamas hadn't spent 20 years diverting billions of dollars in international aid to tunnels and to rockets as opposed to water plants and electricity plants. Um, but no, of course you cannot have goods flowing freely into Gaza when Hamas has demonstrated, and many Gazans have demonstrated, that they will simply use all those goods for purposes of attacking Israel, or they'll smuggle in weapons. So there has to be some element of control over the things that pass into Gaza. And that's not just something that Israel demands. It's also something that Egypt demands. Let's play the last two, and then we'll comment on the seawater attempt that's going to be flooding into the the reverse, the upside-down Maginot line is what I call it. But let's finish with the vice president. No reduction in territory and no use of Gaza as a platform for terrorism. All right. So the, we agree on the last one. And to do that end, uh, it is reported by The Wall Street Journal and The Times of Israel this morning that the IDF is preparing to flood this upside down Maginot line. I believe that is an appropriate tactic of the war, Senator. I believe we will see the pro Hamas media immediately say that's a war crime. What do you think? No, of course it's not a war crime. You, tunnel warfare is very complicated. It's very challenging. Um, your last preferred option is to send actual infantrymen into the tunnels. There are other options you can use, um, such as sending in dogs or sending in robots, that sort of thing. But flooding tunnels is absolutely a valid tactic for tunnel warfare. It has certain ancillary benefits as well, like shorting out the electrical systems um, and the life support systems like HVAC and ventilation and so forth. Um, I'll leave it in the hands of the Israeli defense. Did we lose you there, Senator? Oh, you're back. Okay. I, I, I would I would leave it in the hands of the Israeli defense forces, of course, and their political leadership about which tactic is best suited for Hamas's tunnels. But one thing uh, that we should all agree upon is that those tunnels have to be totally destroyed, and uh, flooding them is absolutely a valid tactic, and it may be the one that Israel chooses to use. Now, Senator, I want to switch because while this very serious conversation is going on, even though there are unserious people like the vice president talking about it, that it is a major war. It is an important issue. And we have Xi and Putin and Khamenei and we have all the other problems. There has been an explosion, not of the House in Arlington, but of anti uh, of, of hysteria about Donald Trump. Robert Kagan, uh, a Trump dictatorship is increasing inevitable. Uh, Ishan Tharoor in the Washington Post, the fear of a looming Trump dictatorship. He assures us this is not mere hyperbole. 
The entire issue of The Atlantic is devoted to Donald Trump dictator on the horizon. And then we have The New York Times yesterday, why a second Trump presidency may be more radical than his first. Now, I'm in Switzerland. I don't know who's going to be the nominee, but if it's Donald Trump, I'll support him and vote for him. And I think it's absurd and stupid hysteria. How do you what is going on here and how do you characterize it? Well, Hugh, many, many of the people writing these foolish pieces about Donald Trump and a nascent dictatorship in America have a high sense of personal drama. I think they have a morality play that is unfolding in their minds in which they are the chief protagonists. Um, but their rhetoric is not just foolhardy. I would suggest that it's also risky and dangerous. Um, I think it's approaching the line a year out from the election, so no telling where it will be a year from now to encourage political violence uh, against Donald Trump as a candidate or potentially as a president-elect or president, um, or violent means to prevent his election, um, in, uh, particularly in swing states. So uh, uh, although I don't it, think they're going to take our advice, I would recommend uh, that all these fanatics uh, with their high sense of personal drama cool the rhetoric and focus on trying to improve the Democrats' political standing um, by helping the American people over the next year. That's the way you win elections in America. It's not this kind of apocalyptic rhetoric that is laying the groundwork, I fear, for legitimizing political violence. Well, I do think there is an element of incitement here that they cannot wash their hands of if political violence follows against the former president or his team. But I want to talk about their lack of faith in the Constitution. If you think that a dictatorship, period, is possible, you don't believe in the Constitution, the rule of law, and, and its strength. It is simply not possible for anyone to become a dictator in the United States under our current Constitution. I, yeah. I firmly believe that. And we have the evidence, both Joe Biden and Donald Trump and every president before them get smacked down by the Supreme Court whenever they cross lines and they always abide. They do not attempt to avoid you and I would also point out that many of these uh, um, hysterics are coming from professional foreign policy establishment types uh, who have always viewed foreign policy and defense policy as kind of the proprietary elites in Washington, and that even presidents are mere interlopers who are trespassing on their terrain. And presidents, as far back at least as Harry Truman, have complained about this and, and put the record straight, you know, as Truman wrote in his memoirs, that these bureaucrats uh, or their friends in Atlantic or the working institution have no power to make American policy. That rests in the hands of 536 elected officials, the president and the Congress of the United States. The Trump presidency, they're also trying to do in this election as well, which is rule and unbounds, very basic things like the president-elect saying he's going to insist that the bureaucracy implement is in the Congress's foreign policy agenda, and if not, he's going to fire them. Uh, amen. And that's what they're worried about. They're actually worried about the disintermediation of what little influence they have left. Uh, and I am afraid, unemployment. Senator Tom Cotton, always a pleasure to talk to you, despite your brown phobia. I think I have a Bivens case against you for your text about the Browns. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Glory, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining me. Joined by Brett Baer, host of Fox News Special Report every night at 6 p.m. Monday through Friday. Good morning, Brett. How are you? Hey, Hugh. Good morning. Uh, I want to begin by asking, are you going down to Alabama for the debate to anchor coverage from down there? 
I am not. I am not. I'll obviously uh, cover it, and I'll have a reaction afterwards, but um, not going in person. Okay, neither am I. I just thought maybe someone might be going down there. I am going to ask you about the explosion of Trump hysteria, Brett. Uh, And I want the audience to understand, I'm talking about Robert Kagan, smart guy, his Washington Post opinion page on the 30th. A Trump dictatorship is increasingly inevitable. Uh, Yesterday, a column by Sean Thardor at the Post, the fear of a looming Trump dictatorship, the entire issue of the Atlantic devoted to the danger ahead of a Trump tyranny. The New York Times yesterday, why second Trump presidency may be more radical than his first. Have you noticed this sudden explosion of Trump hysteria, Brett? I have, and I talked about it last night with Britt Hume. Um, I think that it is exponential. I mean, we've seen articles in the Washington Post, the New York Times, as you mentioned, the entire Atlantic magazine dedicated to that. You saw John Carl in his book and his interviews about his book uh, talking about that particular segment. You've seen Liz Cheney out with a new book and doing interviews and referencing that saying that she believes that he wouldn't step down from um, from office if elected again, that there would, this would be the last election that you would ever vote in. I just think people have to put things in perspective. Um, yes, Donald Trump has, on the stump, said some things that have raised some eyebrows and raised some concern. He's said things like this or similar to them uh, in prior to 2016. We saw four years of Donald Trump. Were there issues that that crossed um, lines? Yes, they raised all kinds of questions. But did people, for the most part, live their lives and were there checks and balances? Yes, there were. Uh, So I think some perspective on all of this is really important. Uh, Some of the things he said have, you know, been troubling. But um, would it be a dictatorship that doesn't step down from office? It's hard for me to back that up as of yet. I, I think it's utterly hysterical because I, I teach constitutional law and the Constitution is very strong. And I recall the Roberts Court rebuking and overruling the former president as it has the current president whenever they go too far vis-a-vis the law. And the rule of law in this country is very, very strong. And this is very, very hysterical. They are basically coming down to the argument, two arguments. One, they won't like who he appoints. And I point out, you got to get through the Senate. So we're going to see a lot of Mike Lee's and Tom Cotton's and Ted Cruz's and Josh Hawley's and Joni Ernst and people like that, because they'll get confirmed. But then they suggest he's not going to step down. That's utterly insane. The Supreme Court will not allow it. And the court has enormous credibility, Brett. Does anyone, do they ever take a breath and realize how they look? And do they think that the military is just going to go lockstep with this dictator I don't know. I just I, I think that people are so scared on the left that he is having such success despite all of the efforts to really take him down. And the, I think that the legal stuff has really backfired. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like it, well, as we've talked about, each indictment, his numbers have gone up inside his own base, um, but it has not even affected some independence and some people who are so concerned about the Biden administration and where President Biden is that they have, despite having doubts about Trump, gotten to a place where they're okay. And And I think that that throws people into a tizzy. 
Let me talk about the vacuum. Britt is one of the last people of stature who can speak commentary. You have to be an anchor. You're not a commentator. Britt's got the stature, but we really miss the late Charles Krauthammer. Uh, because yeah. Charles could settle people down in the pages of the Washington Post and every night on the panel. And I don't think this silliness would be going on if Charles was around. And I, I don't want to invest him with too great an amount of respect. But generally, he never lost his head. And he and he would just be saying to the never Trumpers. And, and many of these people are never Trumpers who used to be conservatives or neoconservatives with influence. And they've been disintermediated from that influence. And they're angry about it. But I just don't think Charles would fall for this nonsense. Do you? I agree. I agree. I will say that Charles, at the beginning of the Donald Trump candidacy, um, you know, had some serious issues with him. At, at one point early on, called him a rodeo clown. And over time, evolved to see all of the backlash that Trump was getting and realized that it was that that was became his focus. And that's, you know, he started talking about the uh, Trump derangement syndrome. Uh, and he was the guy who said, this is, you know, this is where this guy's power is coming from, is all the ridiculousness overreaction that is causing independence to say, wait, why are they overreacting like that? And well, I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's possible to get someone on your team to go back and find all of Charles's comments on that. But it just seemed that we have a vacuum on the right where Brits, Britt can hold that fort down, but there are very few people who have had, are of such gravitas that they can calm the water because it's become, it's going to be a cell phone and own goal for all these people because he's going to be the nominee in all likelihood. I mean, I if we were doing Candidate Casino, I'd put seventy five bucks on him. It's not a done deal. It could not. It could turn out a different way, and then he's probably going to beat Biden if he's the nominee. I mean, these are just odds. Are am I wrong? And you're not wrong. I think there are other things that, you know, possibly could happen. But as you look at the, you know, the possibilities, uh, they're remote as far as him not being either the nominee or uh, going head to head with Biden and having success. I think that they realize that on the left. And that's where the, all of these articles are coming from. It's a same, essentially you singing from the same sheet of music, which is whenever that happens, <laughs> There's always like, wait a second, what's going on here behind the scenes? I, I, I believe that. It's like someone set out the memo and all of the never Trumpers got busy. Now, Brett, the problem with this, ordinarily it would just be politics and it would be silly, but it's obscuring the real problem, which is Hamas are monsters and they're in their tunnels with Americans. And number two, we've got anti-Semitism all over the country in a way I have never seen. I'm older than you. So you've never seen it either, and it's alarming to me. And I'm not Jewish, you're not Jewish, but it's alarming to me. And it's alarming to me. I mean, I've talked to a lot of my Jewish friends who uh, really have fear about where this is going. Um, and, you know, when you have, you know, equivalents or you have um, not strong statements uh, rebuking, um, you know, talking about – uh, balance when it comes to raping Israeli women. I think that that is uh, something that raises a lot of concerns, especially in the Jewish community, but all over. I've got a call. I think it'll come out today. It might be tomorrow. And it's going to stun some of my friends. It's in praise of Hillary Clinton. She is the one Democrat. I mean, the one Democrat of stature who has gone out and slapped this stuff silly whenever it comes up. On every occasion, she says, 
Israel's attacked. They get to they get to defend themselves. Women were raped. There is no excuse. Anti-Semitism is terrible and there is no moral equivalency. Has anyone else done that, Brett? I think there have been a few. I think Kirsten Gillibrand uh, has has been out and about, um, not as you know prominent, obviously, as uh, Hillary Clinton. I think there's a number of Jewish House Democrats who are really vocal, Josh Gothheimer and others. Uh, I think that, um, but Hillary Clinton, in her you know past roles and as Secretary of State, and you know someone who people listen to on the left, uh, is someone who has been very vocal and and. Um, and that's interesting that you're right in that column. Now you've got Lucas and you've got all your great people, Trey. You've got a lot of great people in the uh, in the theater and come back from the theater. Your collective opinion, I think we're going to see a strategic defeat of Hamas within a month. I think they're going to flood the tunnels. I think they're going to defeat them in scale. And some hostages might not come back, but the war will be over. That's what I think. What do they tell you, Brett? Do they, do they expect the IDF to win on a level in the sort of way that – we defeated Germany and Japan. I mean, a defeat that cannot be denied. I think that they feel like the IDF has a good sense of uh, where these leaders are, and they're going to go kind of rat them out and and uh, and and be successful in that. In the interim, you know, being to do that, obviously there will be civilian casualties, and the more that that happens, you know, it is this cycle that we've seen before. It creates another level of terrorist based on what's happening inside Gaza. And um, and that cycle has been going on in the Middle East forever. So, you know, it's it's a concern. I, I think that a lot of the solution comes from the other Gulf Arab states uh, eventually. And how that looks or what it looks like, I don't think we know yet. Yep. Sunni Muslim states have to step up. They really do. Brett Baer, always good to talk to you. Special report tonight at 6 for all the news that you can trust. As Brett likes to say at the end of every broadcast, fair, balanced, and unafraid, it always is. And thank you, Brett, for joining us. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Just watching a Seth Mandel repost of a bunch of anti-Semitic pro-Hamas people yelling at Jews on the Canadian subway. So these are the times in which we live. Byron York joins me from the Washington Examiner Fox News contributor. Good morning, Byron. Were you near the house that blew up last night? No, but I was pretty darned amazed, and uh, I want to know what's going on. That was not a little bitty event. Now, Dwayne suggests that it was death by cop and that he let the gas go in his house long enough before he let the match. Well, I mean, anything is possible here. I mean, we have to see what caused the explosion. Were there actually explosives in there, which would be a wholly different story than, than the gas story? Uh, what was the interaction with the the cops? I mean, clearly you need to do a lot of reporting with the neighbors to see what what they know, uh, who this guy is. Uh, was there anybody else in the house? I mean, there's just so much. And the, the video, though, in case it's pretty extraordinary. I, I just played the video on the Salem News Channel. I got I got to ask you a related question, but it's not apparently related. Did you ever read Bill Bryson's The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kit? I did not. Well, his best friend in high school managed to do that to his house because a prank planned for the last day of school went wrong. And when his dad came in to yell at him, he couldn't hear anything because his ears were ringing. It makes well, me laugh. That this is, we know this is not that because of the interactions with the That's police. right. That's and right. The, but know, just... the guy actually fired a gun 
or if I, I thought was a flare out of his house and yeah. there was some sort of gunshot. I think we're going to find a crazy guy in the oven with gas, but we'll see. By- Byron, I uh, I spent some time talking with Drucker. You usually listen. Did you hear me talking to Drucker about the uh, the explosion of anti-Trump hysteria? Okay, I am I, I wrote not... about this yesterday, yes. Oh, you did? I missed that. What is going on with the anti-Trump people? They're hysterical. Well, I think there's, I think there's a couple of things going on. I, I think, and first, we're talking about the, the Washington Post. Uh, uh, there's a Two clear pieces in the post. Robert Kagan. The Robert uh, Kagan and... piece. We're talking about what Liz Cheney has said. We're talking about the Atlantic special issue. We're talking about the New York Times. Why a second Trump presidency would presidency may be more radical. And so, Ishan Theroux in the Washington Post, who had to use the line, this isn't mere hyperbole, which means, of course, <laughs> it's hyperbole. I, listen, I think they're they're born of, of a couple of things. One is that set of polls that came out several weeks ago um, that not only showed, as, as they all have, Donald Trump leading the Republican race a lot, but they, a number of them, too many to ignore, showed Trump beating Joe Biden in uh, head-to-head matchups. And you remember the collective freakout after the New York Times published a series of polls showing that uh, Trump would beat Biden in five out of six key swing states. Yep. So if you remember, something like this happened in late 2015. Um, uh, the anti-Trump people who, who thought just Trump was kind of a joke and a clown and this would all blow over. About this time in, in December, they began thinking, wow, uh, this may not blow over. He'll be the nominee. But there wasn't this general freakout because uh, the, the people that we're talking about here at The Atlantic, at The New York Times, they all firmly believed that there was no way Trump would be elected president and that Hillary Clinton would defeat him. And so what's happened now is not only is Trump a mile ahead in the Republican race, but they've seen these measurements of Joe Biden's weakness. Um, They know that Biden, that the American public basically disapproves of every single thing he does. Plus, the majority think he's too old for a second term. They look at these polls, and I think Robert Kagan says, you know, you you would be crazy to assume that Joe Biden is going to win next November. So... It, hence the freak out. But, but Byron, I go. I want to take it a step longer. I agree with all that, and I, you know, I can imagine Jeffrey Goldberg, who I've been on on friendly terms with forever. In fact, most of the Never Trumpers I'm on friendly terms with. I can see Jeffrey in my mind's eye walking in the middle of the virtual newsroom and standing on a desk saying, "All hands on deck. We must write Never Trump pieces." And David Frum just you know gets out one that he wrote eight years ago, and and they all recycle. Tom Nichols writes the same thing. Pete Wayner writes the same thing, although Pete's not in it. They all write the same thing. And I get it, but they never actually tell us what he's going to do that's tyrannical. Because here's the deal. You get to bring in the cabinet. They've got to be confirmed. You can confirm Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton. you got to name a running mate, and they got to be constitutionally qualified. It can be Cotton. It can be Ernst. It can be Gallagher. It can be Pompeo. It can be Dan Sullivan. It can be Robert O'Brien. you got to name the cabinet. And then you can only fire people who can be fired. All right. And then if you do anything outside of the line, the courts will stop you as they stopped him many times. You can't be a tyrant in America because the Constitution is very strong and they never tell us how he's going to be a tyrant. Yeah, you're you're right that the courts did stop Trump many, many times. And when the courts told him to stop doing something, you know, he stopped doing it. Uh, I think a lot of this is based on an assumption 
that uh, go back to January 6th, I think there's this kind of assumption that American democracy was hanging by a thread, that we almost lost our democracy that day. Uh, and this, thus, it is so fragile that uh, the election of Donald Trump would certainly be the end of it. Uh, I just want to sh- mention to our, our listeners that American democracy was not hanging by a thread uh, on January 6th. And there were two states whose uh, electoral counts were, were contested. Uh, in Arizona, this, it was the, the vote was certified 93 to 6 in the Senate, Pennsylvania 92 to 7 in the House. 303 to 121 for Arizona, 282 to 138 for Pennsylvania. Uh, these were very solid uh, votes. In, it, we'd never seen that much challenging of a vote, obviously, but there were solid certifications. But I, I also remind people. Hanging by a thread. In 2000, Democrats challenged the count. In 2004, they, they challenged the count. In they 2016, did. they challenged the count. They we didn't did. have a freak out. Now, let's do the counterfactual. Mike Pence is persuaded by the, the president's erroneous legal theory that he can put aside yeah. the ballots. And he does that. You know what happens the next day? The Supreme Court tells him to, to count the ballots. That's what happens the next day. Yeah. The yeah. only yeah. intervening fact in this thing is the riot. And everyone's been prosecuted, and those who are guilty are going to jail. And people can argue all day long about whether or not they should be. I'm glad they were prosecuted if they broke the law, and I'm glad they went to jail. There has never been a threat. The military was not being called out. There is, you know, I saw one of the freak-out artists bring up the Insurrection Act. It's actually a law. It has a predicate, and if you misuse it, you'll be slapped down by the court. The rule of law is very strong. They don't want to deal with that, Byron. Yeah, and you know, actually, Trump did consider the Insurrection Act when the um, federal uh, building in it was important, <clears throat> right? Was under attack for like yes. months, um, and decided not to do it. Although I, I think there was an actual uh, uh, predicate to do it at that time because these were continual attacks on a federal facility in Portland. Um, but he never did it. Um, and, and by the way, uh, it, it wasn't a crazy idea to think about federalizing some response to the riots of 2020. If you remember, there was a big brouhaha at the New York Times editorial page when uh, they published uh, an op-ed by Tom Cotton uh, advocating a federal response, and they all had a nervous breakdown and fired the editorial page editor for even publishing the piece. Um, so, I mean, these were actual live debates inside a democratic context, small d, uh, about what to do about riots. There usually are when we've had large, large riots uh, in American history. Now, Byron, you know about social contagion, and I know about it. I think it's happening among the never-Trumpers. I really mm-hmm. think they've talked themselves into a hysteria that they don't feel any inhibition about airing and that it's going to go on, and I think it's going to help Trump. Do they not make that? Is it because they're totally disintermediated already yeah. from influence, and then they will be out of a job? I mean, I mean, they really will be utterly irrelevant if he wins again and doesn't turn out to be Mussolini. Well, I, I do think that you have to think of, look at this in the context <laughs> of Biden, which is what I was mentioning before, wide, widespread public disapproval of his job performance, plus widespread belief that he's simply too old for a second term. If you're the Biden campaign, what are you going to do? Uh, Basically, what you're going to do is scream about the threat posed by MAGA, the MAGA threat. 
uh, not just Donald Trump, but what, what if Donald Trump isn't isn't the the nominee? Well, they'll the next candidate, next Republican candidate, will be a representative of the MAGA threat. That's all he really has right now. You have to remember yeah, that you're right. all he has. You're right, and they're probably out there begging. They're loyal, but I don't. I don't think these people are loyal followers of the DNC. Robert Kagan's a serious man. Jeffrey Goldberg's. Here. I think they genuinely believe it, and it's hysteria. Well, we'll continue the conversation next week. Byron York on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, and on Fox News, where he's a contributor. Thank you, Byron. Don't go anywhere, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The holly and the ivy, when they are both full grown. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Bethany Mandel joins me. Good morning, Bethany. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Good. Now, I listened to the commentary podcast yesterday. Have you listened to yesterday's commentary podcast yet? I, I as the wife of one of the co-hosts, I say no comment. OK, well, I, I understand from that podcast that you were a fan of Colonial Williamsburg. Yes, he talked our, about Williamsburg. That was so nice. Well, our, our mutual friend, John Bodhort, suggests that perhaps you take the Bethany Mandel children brood to Colonial Williamsburg on uh, about as often as General Eastman goes to Disneyland. Is that true? Yes, it's it's absurdly frequent. Yeah, and you and you dress up well, John. I did I did not know that because I only recently returned to after Seth took over and John started doing the podcast and ten seven happened. I started I subscribed and listened every day, so I didn't know that you were a Colonial Williamsburg fan. Are you still going to go to Williamsburg now that they are officially anti-Semitic and pulled the menorah? Okay, so I'm going to defend Colonial Williamsburg Foundation for a moment here. Okay. That's, that was the actions of a municipality and not the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Colonial Williamsburg Foundation has not made a comment. Uh, I've spent Hanukkah there before. It is lovely and picturesque, and I recommend everyone go. This is not sponsored, but if Colonial Williamsburg wants to start sponsoring me, I am open to it. Do you know, Bethany, when I was a little young nerd, about the age of five, and we went to Colonial Williamsburg... Yeah, yeah, it was a long time ago. Mom and Dad Hewitt had to take me back so I could sit where Patrick Henry sat in the House of Burgess in the movie because they didn't have the heart to tell me that was a recreation and maybe Patrick Henry didn't sit there. But I had to because I had the tricorder hat and all that stuff. Little nerd at the age of five. So I'm here to tell you I'm all for the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. I hope they sponsor you. Let's get serious. That was anti-Semitic what the city of Williamsburg did. And it's at the end of a long list of very chilling things that are happening in America to Jews. So yeah. I listened to the podcast yesterday and John Podhortz, funny as can be, but he got he said, you know, when this starts, it doesn't stop. That was very serious. Yeah. And he's right about that. How do you feel about this for your children? I mean, I, it's scary. There have been moments where I've told my sons to take their yarmulkes off. Um, I've told Seth to when he was commuting into the Washington Examiner office when he was still there, I would tell him to take his yarmulke off and put a baseball cap on. Being afraid of being publicly Jewish is not something new, but the pride with which people have started oppressing Jews in public under the guise of anti-Zionism. I, there was a protest outside of a restaurant in uh, Philadelphia two days ago. Goldie's. And it was because... Yeah, the the owner dared to have a fundraiser for Hatzalah, which is an emergency ambulance organization who serve Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs alike. Um, You really could not get more 
uh, neutral than than Hatzala. Um, and they were standing outside chanting. If you look at just like Food Network, for example, when they are posting donut recipes and latke recipes for Hanukkah, look at the comments. They all say free Palestine. Like this is not, latkes are not about Israel and Palestine. They're just oily, delicious potato treats. Um, I got to tell you something, Bethany. Yesterday, John made a comment. This is why I listen to podcasts. Things I've never thought of, I hear when I listen to commentary and, and Dan Senor. John made the comment that if, if you want to find the most diverse country in the world per capita, you go to Israel. Israel is the capital of intersectionality because it's got a lot of Jews, yes, but they've got a lot of Christians and, and they got a lot of every other kind of thing. And they got Arabs and they got Muslims and they got Bedouins and they got Druze and they got Yemeni Jews and they got Iraqi Jews and they got Soviet Jews. It is the capital of intersectionality. These people are morons. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me seeing so many people just call all Jews white. If you if you look at, at a picture of just an average Israeli kindergarten or IDF battalion, there it's the it's the colors of the rainbow. Um, but people see everything through this very limited lens of of uh, like intersectionality and color and oppressor versus oppressed, and they're unable to sort of see the the really diverse picture that Israel paints um and I, I they're intentionally keeping themselves in the dark because lord knows Israel tries to tell the world and people are just unwilling to listen to it because of jew Key hatred point. They, they because of jew hatred they are keeping themselves in the dark because they want to hate jews that is the bottom line and i never thought i would come to this point and i'm 67 i've never seen this bethany i've never seen this yeah I mean, we've never seen killing on the scale that we saw on October 7th since the Holocaust. So unless you were alive during the Holocaust, we never saw it. But what's really disturbing to me is that the Nazis tried to hide their crimes. Hamas live streamed them. And yet we're still seeing Holocaust denial and rape denial. I mean, the evidence, the forensic evidence is so crystal clear. And yet we have really prominent people parading themselves as rape apologists on the Internet and on television. Quick question. The IDF is close to strategically defeating Hamas and flooding their tunnels. When they are completely defeated and their tunnels are flooded and they are destroyed, do you think these people will be upset or will they be happy? I mean, they don't see Hamas as a threat, so I think that they'll they'll feel completely neutral. I think they're going to be very upset that Hamas has been removed. They may not say it out loud, but some of them are going to slip and say it out loud because the mask is off. Bethany Shondark on X, the site formerly known as Twitter. Go and follow her. And Colonial Williamsburg Foundation sponsor, Bethany. Didn't know she was a Williamsburg nut, but I'm glad to hear it. Stay tuned, America. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.